I'm glad we're together today in this space. Uh, my name is Mark Cummins, and I'm the pastor at Church of Hope. And if you're a regular attender, welcome. So glad that week after week we join together in this space. And if by chance this is your first time, I'm really glad that we're beginning our friendship today. Uh, understand that this broadcast literally goes around the world for free. See, we believe that life's at its best when people discover hope in Christ. There are people who give generously so this broadcast can be reached across every continent. If you've never given, I would invite you today to give. You can go to our webpage, hopeinocala.com, and drop down on the giving bar and give a one-time gift. Or you can give generously beyond just today. And if God's blessed you, help us as we give hope around the world. But for now, I want you to open up your heart and your mind. Let Jesus speak to you because what I believe is that when we open up our minds and let Jesus speak to us, life doesn't become perfect and all the problems don't go away, but you experience his presence in you, with you, and for you. Open up your heart. Let Jesus speak to you today. Peace. YOLO. It's a cute bumper sticker. It's an experience we all have when we go to the beach and we go to the surf shop. You only live once. The problem with it, it's a lie. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, it's appointed unto man or woman once to die. See, the truth is, it's YODO. You only die once, so be ready. And for the last several weeks, that's what we've been talking about. I brought the whiteboard out and illustrated in different questions that people have asked. You can go back and watch any of those messages for yourself. Death is a universal language, and it's inevitable human experience. And God tells us in his word very clearly what happens when a person dies. He doesn't want us to be confused. He wants us to know what happens. So he gives it to us in his word. He's clearly given this to us so that we would be ready. Now, this morning, I'd like to answer the final two questions, perhaps the questions that I get off, asked most often. The first question is what happens to babies, infants, uh, someone who's mentally challenged? If they die, where do they go? Is it heaven, hell, or someplace different? And then, what about people who've never heard of the name of Jesus Christ? When they die, where, where do they go? I, I need to admit up front that I come from a place of believing that God created the universe. So this teaching comes from a place of believing that God created everything. If you come from a different place, I understand how you might think, well, I hear what he's got to say about that, but I don't know that I agree with that. I totally understand. This message is built upon believing that God created you. That's why I say with authority, you only die once because when God breathed life into you, you're not just a random act of biology of a sperm and an egg, conception and birth. God wanted you in existence. He breathed life into you. God is immortal. God being immortal, you now will live 
ever. The Bible says this in Psalms 139, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Now, that statement, those verses, declares that God is the creator. And so if God creates a baby in a woman's womb, and then that baby doesn't come to full life and is birthed, or a little baby or a toddler dies before what often pastors use as this term, age of accountability happens, what happens to that child? Now, that phrase, age of accountability, is nowhere in the Bible. It's not in the Bible any place, okay? However, it is taught in the Bible. Much like in the Bible, the word Trinity, is never taught in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in your Bible. However, we know that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. Likewise, even the word grandfather is not used in the Bible. Just because a word isn't in the Bible doesn't mean God's not teaching to it. This age of accountability is the age at which God begins holding a person accountable for their sins. There is an age, and I know you wanna say, okay, then Mark, what is the age, right? Well, it depends. And we're gonna look at that and what the Bible actually has to say about that. Now, it's important that we embrace, even though we're talking about cute, cuddly babies, that we embrace the idea that every human being, which, by the ways, a baby is a human being, that every baby is a sinner. They are born hard drive of sin. So like even when we have the baby reveals and everybody's excited, right? Really what you're revealing is, is it a sinner boy or a sinner girl? At the core, that precious, you're like, Mark, it's such a precious little baby. Of course, it's a precious little sinner baby. Now, Mark, why would you, why would you say something like that? Well, because God in Romans 3, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standards. I hope to change your mindset this morning of thinking that somehow sin is something that's acquired along the way, that somehow we're born as these beautiful pink little bundles of joy or blue little bundles of joy, rather understanding that the human dilemma is every single human being is born flawed, diseased by sin. Romans chapter five, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone has sinned. If that doesn't help convince you, look at the words of King David in Psalms 51. For I was born a sinner. This is not my opinion. This is not some denominational standard. God says, I'm born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Even that little baby that's in your womb to our expecting moms that are in the house today or watching online. That little baby 
has a disease and that disease is sin. However, the good news is God is just. God is filled with mercy and he wants us to understand that there's an age of accountability and until a human being reaches that age of accountability, God is loving and caring. And what's remarkable is the portion of scripture that we're about to look at is a portion of scripture that is soaked in sin, sin of betrayal, sin of lust, sin of illicit sex, sin of murder, sin of lying and cheating and stealing, the ultimate cover-up. King David, on one particular day, he sees a good-looking woman, she's naked, and he says to himself, I want in on that, literally. And so he summons his advisors to go get her. And she comes back to his place and they get it on. When he's done having his way with her, he sends her back to her place. And he's kind of thinking to himself, self, that was a good time. Until she misses her period and it's discovered she's pregnant. Dang, now what do I do? Well, that woman was married. Her name is Bathsheba. And her husband is Uriah, and Uriah is out at the battlefield. He's with all the other men, and he's fighting for the king. And so David thinks to himself, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll call out, and I'll have Uriah brought back. He's been out on the front lines for some time. We'll cover it up like we're going to give him, you know, leave some liberty. He'll come back. He'll get a good meal at home. He'll see his wife Bathsheba and he'll say, Mama, I've been missing you. Let's go to the bedroom. Except for Uriah was a man of character. And he thought to himself, how could I possibly go into my home, enjoy my wife, enjoy these choice foods while my brothers are out to battle? And so David's plan fell short. David put Uriah back in the battle, put him to the front lines, and then sent out across the communication line, hey, when the battle begins to rage, everybody fall back, except for they turned off Uriah's communication. And he was left surrounded by the enemy and killed. So David calls for Bathsheba to come and to become his wife. He's gonna be the, the noble king and he'll kind of step in, right? And then the baby is born. But the problem is the baby is sick. And if you look on the big Bible on the screen, we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 12. David begged God to spare the child. Many of you parents have been in this space. The, the heartbreaking, heart-stopping, please God, do not let this baby, this pregnancy, and he went without food and he laid all night on the ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with him, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said, what drastic thing will he do when he, 
we tell him that the child is dead. The pain is overwhelming to a parent. The pain is overwhelming when you see a little child suffer, a pregnancy not go full term. The grief and the emotion, the thought was if David was undone while the child was still alive, maybe he would commit suicide. What crazy thing would he do? The emotional pain of this space. When David, verse 19, when David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. I'm answering the question, what happens to a child who has not yet reached the age of accountability when they die? Do they go to heaven? If every human being is born a sinner, do they automatically go to hell? What happens? And here God has a message for all of us and in particularly for all parents. When David saw them whispering, he realized the child was dead. Verse 20, then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and you refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped your mourning and are eating again. And David's reply is everything I've taught you for the past four weeks. I've taught you that God wants you to know what happens when you die. That first death, the separation of your spirit and your body. He wants you to know what's going to happen the second after you take your last breath. And here God's teaching us about babies. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? This baby died. Can I bring him back again? I taught you from the Bible. You can't. There is not a coming back again, right? One day we will join those who have preceded us in death in a real place called heaven. Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. And so to every parent, every grandparent, a baby that has not come full term, that little baby boy and that little baby girl will greet you in heaven one day. Every child, every, anybody who has not come to that point of the age of accountability, God's graciousness, God's love, one day you will be reunited and that hurt and that pain and that sorrow will be forever erased. God's incredible sense of justice is experienced in this space. But what I need to do now is teach very carefully the stages of child development as it accounts for accountability for sin. So if you're taking notes, write these things down. The age of accountability. I cannot land you on a particular age, so I'm gonna give you three seasons of a child's development 
that proceed towards that moment in time where your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter has stepped into that age of accountability and there's nothing more important in the galaxy than that child discovering that Jesus Christ is the cure for their sin. Sin is a disease. Jesus is the cure. Here's the first thing. Is number one is this. They know the difference between right or wrong. Again, I don't know the exact age. I remember my girls, around that 15 months, they started to walk and get around and there'd be something, you know, on the coffee table. They knew they weren't supposed to touch it. And I call it that toddler look. They kind of look like... They knew... The difference between right or wrong. That's that first stage. You begin to see it. And they're six, seven, eight months. They don't really understand what, what, what's going on. Second, write this down. They understand that their choices have moral consequences. That they've begun to connect that my choice has a moral consequence. I'll never forget it. One day I was living in Bowie, Maryland. It's outside of Washington, D.C. I came home from the office that day and my daughters were duct taped together. <laughs> they were. That's 1996, 90, uh, no, 1995. So one of my girls, they're like four and two and they're duct taped together. Their mama was tired of them fussing and feuding and not getting along. She, she said, fine, you're going to stick together the rest of the day. There's a, there's a connection between choices that you make and a moral consequence. And then finally, in, in point three, their cognitive reasoning skills are developed enough to understand the relationship between their sin and Christ's sacrifice. My girls growing up in my home, they saw very early that Jesus was the center and the point for my life. Um, not just because I was a pastor and my life had been changed. I mean, we were at church in the morning, at night, uh, on Wednesday nights. It was, it was the rhythm of our, of our lives, on vacation, wherever we were. And so even when they understood their choices had moral consequences and that Jesus loved them, I know early in their life, I think seven, eight, nine or so, they had made decisions for Jesus. But both of my daughters had circled back in their middle school years and had made a salvation decision because I think what was happening in that 12, 13 year age is they began to connect their personal sin, the evil, the vile wickedness of who they are as human beings. It became keenly aware to them that their sin caused Jesus to go to the cross and die for them. And then they both made decisions uh, for Jesus in middle school years of their life. You know, the development of children has really changed. When I started in ministry, they would say, it's really important to reach someone by the age of, of 18. It's 18. There's something about reaching a young person by the age of 18. Let me just, let me just beta test this for a moment. How many in this gathering, you can join in on this, I can't see you online, but how many made a decision to follow Jesus at age 18 or younger? Can I see your hand? Nice and tall in this room. I mean, there you go, right? What we've discovered recently is that age has moved from age 18 
to age 13. You might not like it, parents, but 13-year-olds are doing what you did in college. They know what you did in college. And so our efforts and our energies to lean in and help our sons and daughters to be keenly aware, where, where are they on that age of accountability? Now, question for us. I think I know the answer, but if your child, and I realize some of your children have been born with some physical challenges, but if your child is born with a physical disease, would you settle just going down to the corner clinic to have their disease addressed? Or would you be getting in your car and going up to Shands? Would you go down to Moffat? Would you go over to Jacksonville at Mayo? Where would you take your son? If your son or daughter has a disease, where are you taking your son or daughter to become cured of that disease? The best place possible, true? Now listen, my name is Mark. I'm for you. I, I, I love you and I love your families. I'm glad that you got your kids involved in athletics, but let me tell you something. Athletics is not a cure for the disease that your son and daughters have called sin. I want you to be all about academics, but let me tell you something. Academics has never once caused the cure for the disease called sin your children have. If you would leverage your life, your time, and your cash to get your son and daughter who have a physical disease into the best space, the best place to experience a cure for that disease in the physical world, why the, would you not do that for them spiritually? Why would you not? Your sons, your daughters, they are diseased. It's called sin. And we don't have hope kids this morning just so you can sit comfortably. And let me just say out loud, I love everybody that's here. I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but this space is not designed for anybody under the age of middle school. We have two full-time staff. We purchased the best resources available. We recruit, train, develop, background check men and women who right now in this space are not babysitting your children. They are dealing with the disease of sin because we know that during this journey of adolescence that at some point they're gonna flip over into the age of accountability and we want your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren to die with the cure and the cure has a name, Jesus. Our team knows behind this, the scenes, I've said out loud, it is a sin to bore a kid. I want our children's ministries to be interactive and exciting and to be vibrant. But I also want our Hope Kip team to know that we are surgeons and we are dealing with the greatest disease ever known to mankind and it's called sin. I also say this with great respect. 
I started years ago in student ministries. We called it prime time. Before prime was prime time, we had prime time. And I'm all about students. I love, I love kids. But even back then and now, I always struggled. As a businessman, you would think about, okay, we're in business to make money. We're in business to grow our client base. But statistically, in this country, your children, those of you who have grown children, you know this to be true. They've gone through children's ministry. They've gone through student ministry. You sent them to summer camp. They went off to college and they said, hell no to God. And they live however they want to live now. And you're hoping on a on some kind of wish and a prayer that something they said back in the day, they live like the devil today, but somehow you think something back in the day, they said something like this, and so maybe they're okay and right with God. I hope you wake up. My heart would be heavy if I had a grown son, a grown daughter, and they're not chasing after Jesus. Why? because there's a disease and it's called sin. And if it's not cured before you die, you go to hell. We moved our student ministries day one, 1440, to Sunday night, almost 15 years ago. Because we get it, parents. There's so much happening during the week. You've got homework and you've got sports and hobbies and all the other kind of things. And so tonight, and, I, and, I, I'm, and I'm for all youth pastors, I'm for anybody who's trying to get people to Jesus. But let me tell you something. If having the cool, slick student ministries with a skinny jean pastor who's kind of super cool and slick and is just a little bit older than the teens and keeps everybody happy and youth group becomes this place where you come and hang out with your friends. If that was the formula to take care of the disease called sin, America wouldn't be where it's at today. And our students wouldn't graduate from high school and walk away from God. Our student ministry, 1440, that meets tonight, yes, they'll have a good time. Yes, they'll be around their different friends, but we are dealing with the disease called sin because I want our students to discover hope in Jesus Christ. And moms and dads and grandparents, I would encourage you to leverage your life The most important thing in your life as you watch your sons or daughters track through these stages of age of accountability, you can't force it upon them. You can't make them and you can't vicariously live for Jesus for them. But you certainly can leverage your time and your resources and your example so that early in their life, they'll discover hope in Jesus. Thank you. Being together in this space today is really good. If you've never begun a relationship with Jesus, I'd like to invite you today to start following Jesus. It's not about your behavior. It's not about your church attendance. It's about the reality that Jesus is for you. God's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. Would you right now pray this prayer with me? Hey God, it's me. I've sinned and I know it. And I can't fix me. But today, I receive you, Jesus, as my Savior. I believe that you died on that cross for me and that you were buried for three days and then you became alive again. And I invite you into my life 
to guide me and direct me all the rest of the days of my life. And with that prayer, my friend, welcome to God's family. I'd like to continue our friendship. If you would email me, pastor at hopeinocala.com. I'll follow up with you and together we'll celebrate Jesus in your life. Peace.